The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Sportbox. We're live this morning in London, Kiev and Istanbul. And here are your headlines this hour. The S&P 500 delivering its best start to the year in over two decades, while Asian shares kick off the quarter in the green as Chinese manufacturing activity unexpectedly grew in March. Divisions in the UK's Conservative Party deepen as Prime Minister Theresa May plans her next Brexit move, while lawmakers prepare to vote on alternatives to her rejected deal. Uh, it's no April Fool's joke. Actor and comedian Vladimir Zelensky takes a commanding lead in the first round of the Ukrainian presidential elections and tells me just after the polls close that he will use the office if elected to fight the establishment. We'll fight the corruption system. Is that the biggest problem in Ukraine? This is corruption. the biggest problem, corruption, I think. Ministerial Secretary under pressure as President Erdogan loses four major cities across Turkey, including the capital city of Ankara and Istanbul. The battle continues. At this hour, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg calls for more internet regulation. Jeff Bezos' security consultant accuses the Saudi government of hacking the Amazon CEO's phone. And Lyft sets the stage for a wave of tech IPOs as shares close almost 9% higher in their stock market debut. Well, we start out the week with a dose of good news. Chinese factory activity unexpectedly jumping in the month of March, rising for the first time in four months. China's official PMI has hit 50.5, up from February's three-year low of 49.2, fueling optimism that Beijing's stimulus measures may be starting to take hold. Cajun's private PMI survey also pointed to a surprise expansion with manufacturing growing at its fastest pace in eight months. And here's the reaction. Terrific response for the uh, Shanghai Composite uh, rally of more than 2% as we clock up 2.3% on the charts or 70 points. A rally too for Hong Kong stocks, 1.6%. And if you cast the net a little bit wider to the Australian market, often seen as somewhat of a proxy for the Chinese markets, uh, six-tenths of a percent, the Chinese economy. So Australian stocks responding and right up to the Japanese market with Nikkei 225 has put on close to 290 points or just over 1.3%. So uh, certainly a strong response for markets as they progress into the fourth month of this year and putting the first quarter behind them, certainly bounced to start out the second quarter. Well, China has said it will continue to suspend additional tariffs on US vehicles and auto parts. The country's state council said the move was a goodwill gesture amid ongoing trade negotiations with the US. Talks are set to resume this week with Chinese Vice Premier Li He heading a or leading a delegation to Washington. I think there's certainly some hopes in the market that a trade resolution will be forthcoming soon. Karen, we'll get back to the market shortly. We've got quite a lot of political stories to crunch through before we focus on these numbers. So let's kick off in the UK. British Parliament is set to hold another round of indicative votes on Brexit alternatives after Prime Minister Theresa May's deal suffered a third defeat on Friday. Speaking after the vote, May said MPs were exhausting the options for Brexit. I fear we are reaching the limits of this process in this House. This House 
This House has rejected no deal. It has rejected no Brexit. On Wednesday, it rejected all the variations of the deal on the table. And today, it has rejected approving the withdrawal agreement alone and continuing a process on the future. This Government will continue to press the case for the orderly Brexit that the result of the referendum demands. Prime Minister Theresa May, well, the pound is recovering somewhat. This is a, a modest rebound, 130.45. So those Brexit pessimists are perhaps starting to feel a little less gloomy. But do they have good reason to be so? Let's get out to Willem, who joins us now from Westminster. And Willem, I think it was interesting over the weekend, practically every UK newspaper ran some story suggesting that the Tories or at least the Prime Minister, could trigger an election if she doesn't get her own way. Do you think that's going to encourage some of those Brexit rebels back into line? Well, 170 members of her own party, Jeff, have written a letter to her saying, bring back your deal for a fourth vote, leaving aside whether there's any difficulties in doing so because of what the Speaker of the House of Commons has said in the past. That would seem to indicate that there's a number of people inside our own party who are desperate to avoid a long extension to Brexit, very keen to avoid, according to this letter, the possibility the UK would take part in European elections. But what we'll see today is once again Parliament taking control of the legislative agenda. They will have a series of votes later on this evening, trying to whittle down some of the options that they laid before the House of Commons last week. None of those managed to command a majority, although a couple of them came close. So what we'll have to go and wait and see is to see whether one of those, maybe permanent membership of the Customs Union, for instance, or a confirmatory vote, essentially putting this out to the public again in the future, could command a majority. And if so, would there be a way for Parliament to impose its will on the government? So far, no indication Theresa May is prepared to do that. As you heard in that piece of uh, a tape you just played from late last week, she has said that she would like to push on with her attempt at a withdrawal process, an orderly withdrawal process, the Europeans, meanwhile, sounding increasingly exasperated, Jeff. Let me jump in and ask a question, Willem. I was looking at a note this morning from Berenberg and effectively it was sort of raking the chances of a various different options from a hard Brexit uh, quick resolution. And one of the options that seems to have a moderate to high chance is a long delay that ends with a soft Brexit. Just talk us through that possibility. So one thing the Europeans have said is that the withdrawal agreement, that's nearly 600 pages, that's the divorce settlement, is not really open to any further negotiation. We've seen the British try and fail to get any changes or tweaks made to that significantly. In terms of the future relationship, there's a blueprint for that. It's known as the political declaration. And that is an area the Europeans have said they're prepared to discuss. And it could be an area that Parliament would like to see change, because what you're looking at now is a series of limits placed upon the UK's relationship with Europe by the Prime Minister. That's her interpretation of what the Brexit vote meant. One of those limits is about not being a member of the European Customs Union because of the limitations it would place on Britain's future independent trade policy. But Parliament and a lot of businesses would like to see that closer trading relationship maintained. And if that is something Parliament tries to push on the government, that could be a way to try and get support for Theresa May's divorce deal long into the future. But in order to sort that out, in order to make those changes, in order to start those negotiations with Europe about changes, it could take a little while longer. And that's where you could see potentially, Karen, that much longer extension required. Willem, thank you very much for fleshing that out for us. I want to take our viewers to 
the market action because, well, Brexit has been percolating in the background, one of the big risks for markets. There's been about three. Investors have still been driving stocks high in what has been a stunning quarter. You may recall that trade, of course, is one of the other big issues. The market very much watching the fortunes of the US-China relationship and what that means for growth. The other big factor has been growth more broadly and what central banks are going to do. And it was a month where we did see the Fed roll over, effectively removing those two rate hikes, replacing them with a zero. And then after that, we had growth fears that really reflected in the uh, inverted yield curve. So for the quarter, the best quarter since 2009 is what the S&P managed to clock up. Uh, the overall change, 2834 is what we have on markets by the close, up about just over six tenths of a percent, 13 percent uh, the size of the rally that was seen. When it comes to the Dow, let's just uh, switch over the boards and you can see over the course of the last three months, 11 percent. So double digit gain on the Dow Jones. Uh, so it has been a, a stunning performance for markets. It was quite funny in the sense that we did look like we were going to roll over in March at different times. A couple of big market moments. However, all this led to just grinding higher. So effectively, we still had some, some decent gains for the month of March, although volatility just picked up a little bit. Some of this down to that US 10-year yield because the market saw the inversion of the yield curve and that well and truly spooked to a lot of investors. Typically in the past, when the 10-year uh, yield curve uh, has inverted where you've now got the three-month T-bill yield higher than the 10-year. It's been a precursor. It's been a symbol, a, a, um, a moment where you've seen the light sort of shining down the path towards a recession. And investors have been worried about that. So the 10-year note, you can see, has been pulling back as a result, uh, or rallying, I should say, the yield pulling back 2.43% where we're at. The change over the last three months, we've seen a drop in that yield of close to 10%. Now, on the economic calendar today, final reads of euro area March PMI are expected to show a, a continued decline in manufacturing sentiment, uh, particularly in Germany. We're also going to get a first look at the bloc's inflation figures. That will be crossing as well. Manufacturing PMI is due in the United States, along with February retail sales. So I think that puts into context as we see markets rallying on the back of uh, fairly light action from central banks. We are still watching the data very, very closely as we begin the second quarter. Jeff. Karen, thank you. Coming up on the programme, a political novice and actor who plays his country's president in a TV show leads exit polls in the Ukrainian presidential election. The latest from Kiev after the break. We'll see you in a moment. Welcome back to Sportbox. Actor and comedian Volodymyr Zelensky has won over 30% of votes in the Ukrainian presidential election, according to exit polls, ahead of incumbent Petro Poroshenko. Former Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko is trailing in third. If no one wins over half the vote, the top two candidates will advance to a runoff on April 21st. Well, tensions with Russia have been a key election issue. Speaking on CNBC in Kiev, Zelensky outlined his strategy with Russian President Vladimir Putin. We have a Minsk process and we'll do the diplomatic meetings during the Minsk process. What we have now is this is the, this is the diplomatic way because we don't want to war. We don't want to fight. We want to stop the war in Donbass. Well, let's get out to Steve in Ukraine. And Steve, this looks like a, a page straight out of the Beppe Grillo playbook in Italy, doesn't it? We, we have another comedian running for high office. 
Yeah, and happy April Fool's Day, Jeff. Uh, no, that is not a joke coming from Kiev. It is the absolute truth. The problem is, unlike Beppe Grillo, I think we knew a lot of what Beppe Grillo's policies were. We don't know what a lot of Vladimir Zelensky's policies are. We don't even know if he is actually a bit of the old architecture of Ukraine, i.e. is he actually backed uh, by this um, this uh, oligarch, Mr. Kolomoisky, who's actually kind of pretty much on the run from the country as it is at the moment as well, due to uh, concerns about Privat Bank, which he ran uh, before it was nationalised as well. But I want to come back to the future with a guest who uh, we frequently spoke to when we came to Ukraine in 2014, 2015. I'm delighted to say Thomas Fiala has joined us, who is the CEO of Dragon Capital, which is the largest investment bank here in Ukraine. And Thomas, it's an absolute pleasure to see you back on this old balcony, uh, back in Ukraine. And I have to say, it's a very different environment in many ways. So before we talk about what's wrong with Ukraine, mm-hmm. and we can talk about a lot about that, and we will do that as well. What has gone right in the last five years under two different prime ministers and, of course, under Mr. Poroshenko? Well, never in Ukraine's past there have been so many structural reforms done. Macroeconomic stability has been achieved. We have a very conservative fiscal policy with deficit less than uh, 2.5%. That to GDP came down from over 80% to 59% as of the end of February. We have a great uh, national bank uh, with strict uh, conservative monetary policy. The banking sector has been cleaned up. The banks are now making returns on equity of 30% uh, plus, so the privately owned banks. A um, lot of new investment is coming in, which we and also... And I noticed a lot of new building when I came in from the airport as well. A lot of new building left, right and centre. Yeah, CapEx has been growing at 20% per annum for the last three years. The economy is now in its fourth years of uh, growth. Uh, uh, personal incomes are growing at 20, 25%. So the economy is definitely picked up speed after a okay. quite substantial so, correction. So that's the very positive story. And, and we talk about populism in the last few years in Western Europe and the US. Well, but populism has been pretty much part of the architecture of this country ever since it threw off the Soviets in the early 90s. And we, I can talk about the Orange Revolution and we can, of course, talk, of course, talk about Euromaidan. But, and here's the but, before I came out here, I did quite a bit of research and I had a couple of off-the-record phone calls with some very important people who this country needs. That's all I can really say about that conversation. And they were all dismayed by the corruption in this country, by what the Ukrainian Constitutional Court has done, mm-hmm. basically saying that, it, mm-hmm. let me put this, illegal enrichment, or have you also, enrichment uh, from the state is not illegal anymore as well. And that's really worrying for a lot of those international bodies and could mean the taps are turned off on international mm-hmm. money. We actually poll international investors on an annual basis uh, and uh, the number one impediment for them increasing their investment and for FDI to increase is the lack of rule of law. That means corruption in courts and in law enforcement agencies. And that's the main weakness. The current president uh, and the government have not been able to restore justice. And that's what felt not not only by investors, but also by the general population and is the reason for the underperformance of the incumbent in yesterday's polls. Do you have real hope that, again, I spoke to Vladimir Zelensky about this yesterday, and I I got the real impression, I've spoken to Mm -hmm. dozens of politicians in this country over the last few years and globally. I couldn't really get a main policy out of the man. I didn't really Mm -hmm. know what he's going to stand for. I didn't know what his actual actions are going to be to improve all of these issues we've talked about. He is very fresh to politics. Uh, He's only a few months uh, uh, there. Uh, Indeed, uh, he... uh, he has the right headlines uh, for policies, including the cooperation with the IMF, uh, conservative fiscal policy, privatization, land market liberalization, which all uh, um, seem very nice for us. He's got also the right people around him, like Abramovichus, uh, Daniluk, uh, who have been seen as uh, pro-reform in the past governments. Um, but he's very fresh, very new, and uh, his knowledge of uh, economy, politics, geopolitics uh, seems to be quite uh, 
um, not very, not deep enough. And the two uh, men you mentioned, I actually spoke to them both yesterday as well, Mr. Mm-hmm. Danny Luca and Mr. Abramidicius mm-hmm. as well. And I thought they talked a lot of sense as well, but equally so, mm-hmm. they still wouldn't reveal mm-hmm. what the magic source is to get this country back on track. How do you fight an establishment which is so entrenched in corruption in so many ways that is resistance to having a reckoning of mm-hmm. that corruption as well? Mm-hmm. I didn't get the policies still. Well, you need to have the political will at the very top. Uh, you need to appoint the right prosecutor general. We will see Mr. Zelensky has promised that before the second round, he will uh, um, he will publish uh, his top uh, lineup, his top five people, which will be the nominees for the general prosecutor, head of the security service, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, and uh, the army, the, the, the Ministry of Defense. So we will see based on those uh, nominations uh, what his policies will be. It will be also important if he wins the election, which he has a very high chance of uh, doing. Um, who will he appoint uh, for the presidential administration? And then we have presidential election uh, in the fall. Yeah, those parliamentary elections in the fall as well. How important are those? Because, as you say, he's new. He hasn't got a base at the moment. Mm-hmm. And we could see a very fragmented parliament in the autumn, which I understand that mm-hmm. the Russians are more interested in that and getting a pro-Russian bloc to thwart legislation mm-hmm. than anything else. Well, the parliamentary elections are indeed very uh, important, but I don't think there is any way back uh, for Ukraine towards uh, Russia. Uh, Ukraine is firmly, and the population also is uh, firmly on the supporting westward westward uh, direction, which is membership of the EU yeah. and NATO. They are now firmly also anchored in Ukraine's constitution. Don't solve the corruption issue, EU, forget it, and forget about more money from the IMF and the World Bank. Corruption and rule of law, they are whoever becomes president, they are the number one uh, goals uh, for them, because uh, if they don't fulfill these uh, hopes of the population, they will uh, lose uh, quite shortly. Uh, it's great to see you looking so well and mm-hmm. things going so well for you. So mm-hmm. thank you very much indeed for joining us. I'll see you on this balcony another four or five years, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> it's thank still you. as fresh as ever on this old Soviet balcony, Jeffrey, I can assure you. And still, uh, uh, you have to be quite intrepid to get out here, is all I can say. Back to you. Four or five years, I think you'll be back in a fortnight, Steve, for the second round. So uh... I think possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see you a little bit later on. Thanks so much for that for now. Turkish President Erdogan has pledged a renewed focus on economic reform after upsets in major local elections. A quick look at how the lira has been trading. There's been a bit of a weakening, about 1.2% is what we've had an initial reaction. And currently you can see dollar making gains of about a third of a percent to the lira. Nothing versus what we've seen in recent weeks with some wild swings in the local currency. Well, let's get to Hadley for more in Istanbul. Hadley, there was some heavy lifting by the opposition in the local elections trying to deliver a blow to Erdogan, given that the airways are effectively monopolised by the government, but they've managed to do so in the capital and a number of other major cities. What does this mean for Erdogan, who seemed like he was basically invincible for many years? That's right, Karen. They've wanted to deliver a major blow, and they certainly have done so. Essentially, with the winds in cities like Ankara, Antalya, Izmir, and other cities across this country, essentially uh, the CH party, the opposition, the main opposition to the president's party, has picked up influence with about 40% of this country's population. And Istanbul itself is still uh, a contested city. We still don't know who picked up the majority of the seats here. It's very much too close to call at this point, even still. And of course, one of the big questions going forward is whether or not 
President Erdogan if this is a blow big enough uh, to derail his ambitions in terms of what he said that he wants to do in terms of these major economic reforms. He said by April 8th that we would have more information about what the country and the government is going to try to do, not just to stop this continued speculation when it comes to the lira, but also in terms of the fact that this is a country that's suffering from major unemployment, that it's the first time in a decade that this country has been in a technical recession. There are a lot of fears amongst local people that we've been speaking to about what this means for the country, not just locally, but internationally as well, given the president's policies. But let's listen into what he had to say overnight. Every victory and every loss is the will of our nation, and we have to accept this fact as a necessity of democracy. We will admit that we won people's hearts in cities. We won, but we were not successful enough in the cities that we lost, and we will act accordingly. We will be focusing on the economy, politics, defence, industrial production and investment in Turkey, and we will take our steps accordingly. President Erdogan essentially saying, hey, we really did suffer a major blow here. We lost in major cities where we should have had a lead. One of the big questions, guys, has been over the last couple of years since that a coup attempt back in 2016 is just how much power the president really still has when it comes to local population because of course as i say been suffering from unemployment they've been suffering of course from uh, general fears about the rising cost of living and the fact that wages have been going lower one of the things that we keep hearing again and again from the international community, particularly from the West, has been uh, the concerns that they have about the president's policies internationally as a NATO member, certainly with the purchase of the S-400 missile systems uh, from Russia. A lot of concerns on Capitol Hill about that relationship with Erdogan and President Trump. We heard, you know, differing narratives depending on the day for a long time there in terms of what was happening with the pastor Rumson, uh, the return uh, of the potential return of President Erdogan's major political nemesis, I you will, uh, Fethullah Gulen from the United States. They've been trying to get him extradited now, as you know, for a couple of years now, and have been failing so far to do so. A lot of concerns on the international front, certainly continued concerns on the domestic front, and you see that very much reflected in the election results today, guys. Hadley, I think it's interesting that you went straight to some of the worst case fears, and that's exactly what some of the, the commentators have been looking at, that you could see these hardline tactics from Erdogan where he doubles down on some of them with provocative foreign policies. If that is the case, surely it does fuel this move towards holding more dollars effectively away from Turkish liras, which has been part of the problem as well domestically. So how do you describe this vicious loop that Erdogan may embark upon? This is the question, isn't it? Because you don't have another election in this country for another four and a half years or so. So it would seemingly give the president and his government enough time to implement economic reforms that have been much needed, as you know, for the last couple of years. And frankly, it's been a question of whether or not the president's been playing politics here, that he hasn't done more to stabilize the economy, to help the Turkish Central Bank when it comes to stabilizing the lira. Now, it's interesting, of course, to note that with the fact that they have made or he has made his son-in-law the head of both the finance ministry and the economic ministry holding two portfolios, a lot of folks have questioned whether or not the president still has the political will, given these election results, uh, to, to implement these reforms. But as I say, they still got about four and a half years until people will head to the polls once again uh, to make this kind of a decision. And certainly this is seemingly, even though he wasn't himself running, a real referendum on President Erdogan's leadership. Hadley, just on the issue of uh, the currency, obviously, we talked a lot about that and the potential for contagion into other emerging markets. Um, now that we're through this electoral phase, any sense that we're going to see markets calm as we come into this trading week? 
you know, at this point, Jeff, it seems as if the lira is, is weakening a lot less than, than folks had anticipated, because at the end of the day, one of the big questions here particularly has been about leadership, has been about uh, the strength of the government. And one of the questions, as you know, in emerging markets generally is whether or not these governments, whether they're in or, or they out, they have the political capital to implement reforms and to really make a, a dent when it comes to economic uh, issues. One of them, of course, here has been the major move uh, by the government to keep the banks in line with their policies. And of course, this is something that uh, has taken, President Erdogan has taken very, very seriously, and particularly with his attacks again and again on his own central bank governor of the independence of the central bank in this country, as well as other emerging markets is one of the big questions. And certainly it's something that, interestingly enough, over the last year or so has actually become, as you know, an issue even in the United States. So in terms of the independence of the central bank, in terms of the banking sector, in terms of the financial sector as well in this country, I mean, folks that we've been speaking to, none, of course, wanting to go on the record, but there has been a long term sense of people running scared. And as a result of the president's tactics politically, domestically and certainly internationally as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.